2: Warning to anyone with kids in earshot, this episode has a curse word. You may want to send the kids outside to work on their dribbling if you don't want them to hear it. Okay, on with the show. By the fall of 1991, Anson Dorrance had been relentlessly shaping the psyche of the U.S. women's national team for five years.
3: I actually asked the team in a public forum said, you know, we can approach this World Cup from two different perspectives. One is to sort of sneak into the World Cup and then upset everyone, or we can go in like a lion and challenge anyone to knock us off. I was hoping they would select the latter story, and everyone did. We didn't go in, you know, on cat's feet. We went in uh, with the ambition of just tearing everyone's throat out.
2: Write your own story. Own the mental edge. You are the favorites here. Act like it. Their style, their training, their swagger—it was uniquely, abrasively American.
4: You know, we were gonna outwork, out hustle, out fight, out grit everyone. It didn't matter what it looked like; it could be ugly, but that was—that you know, was the American way, and that's how we were gonna play. And so, look the fuck out! <laughs> Here we come. It's basically <laughs> our mentality. We love to swear.
2: They were going to China for the first Women's World Cup and they were coming in loud. I'm Grant Wall. This is Throwback.
1: Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas.
5: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
2: So what gave the U.S. team so much swagger? There were a few crucial factors. The first was an insane level of conditioning. Dorrance preached the gospel of fitness. They always wanted to train harder than anyone they were playing. And in advance of the 91 World Cup, they were able to take it to another level. The team got some long-awaited support from U.S. soccer. For the first time, they were able to have a long training camp together over several weeks in North Carolina to prepare for the tournament. Dorrance credits the change to Alan Rothenberg, a Los Angeles lawyer who had become the new U.S. soccer president the year before. Rothenberg was, shall we say, new to women's soccer. When you took office, what did you know about the U.S. women's national team?
3: I didn't know it existed. Really? Truthfully, I had no idea that there was a women's team.
2: But then Rothenberg found out the situation the U.S. women had been dealing with for the past five years. He was surprised.
3: They were basically moonlighting. They were either in school or had jobs or both. And every once in a while, he'd gather them together uh, and have training for them, but zero financial support.
2: U.S. soccer wasn't doing well at all financially in those days, but Rothenberg was starting to change that, and he approved Dorrance's proposal for a training camp in North Carolina.
3: Well, it struck me, obviously, that it was our responsibility to do something for them as much as we could under the circumstances.
2: The camp made a difference. For once, it wasn't a juggling act of responsibilities. The camp allowed the team to eat, breathe, and live soccer. They could just focus on Dorrance's notoriously intense practices. One killer was the beep test, a diabolical shuttle run that left everyone on the verge of fainting or throwing up or both.
3: Well, let me tell you what I think the most critical quality is in training. It's the thing I stole from the movie The Great Santini. And this is what Santini says. He says, I want my sons to have the gift of fury. I want them to gobble up the world. I want them to eat life before life eats them. I try to set up environments that are filled with fury to basically try to get to the core of the center of each person's heart. And I want them to run into our hearts and know how hard they are and be intimidated by it. Every
2: step was measured, every time was recorded, everything was competitive.
4: It was a constant keeping track of your record against each other, so we we're constantly running against time. So if you weren't fit, you knew what it was. You didn't have any corners to crawl behind.
2: But the national team players learned to embrace this intensity. We
0: ate it up. Like we just it brought us closer and we made it part of our culture and motivation and intensity to be the
2: best. By the end of the training camp, the U.S. team was ready for China. So they packed their bags and boarded a charter plane and flew for a day and a half. A typical flight to China from New York takes 14 hours. But to save money, FIFA decided to treat the plane more like a bus. That meant flying the wrong way around the world so they could pick up other teams in Europe. I think it took us over 36 hours just to get to China. At least when they landed, they got to stay in nicer hotels than on previous China trips. And this being the m and World Championship, if they got to the final, they'd be staying at a five-star hotel. Which happened to be owned by Henry Folk, the guy who lobbied FIFA to bring the tournament to China. But just because they were staying in nicer rooms didn't mean they were about to go soft. We laid on our beds for like one hour
0: and then we we're like, it's we have to go to training, and it's a fitness
2: day. That's right. After 36 hours on a plane, they went straight into gut busting cardio drills.
0: Because Anson is all, we're building mentality, ladies, and so you're exhausted, and you haven't eaten, and then you're going out and running fitness and. trying to get through that and have a
2: competitive practice. Have you ever heard the expression, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? There's a picture of us standing on the bench and we're all
0: goofing around and making faces and like weird poses because we were like, this was the last day of fitness and now it's going to be easy because we're just playing the World Cup now.
2: That was the U.S. mentality coming into the World Cup it would be easy compared to their practices. And at 7.45 p.m. on November 17th, 1991, in 70-degree weather in a packed stadium, after five years of creating that culture, the moment finally
3: arrived. Puyu, China. It's the FIFA Women's World Championship for the m and Cup.
2: They were ready But playing Sweden wasn't going to be easy. It's going to be a great game, but this is one of the teams they've never beaten. Sweden, they are 0-1-1 against. Despite being the tournament favorites, the U.S. had never gotten a win against Sweden.
5: Getting set to kick it off, Lena Vitakul to Anel Andelin, and we are underway. First half action, the first FIFA women's World then, just together, before the be end tough. of the first half, she tries to cross. She does out in front, cleared, but not out. Here's Karen Jennings with it. Jennings to the middle. Her shot. She scores. Karen Jennings and the United States draws first
2: blood. And shortly after the second half whistle,
5: Jennings the one wide, left foot in shot. She scores.
2: Then, 19-year-old Mia Ham, the team's youngest player, announced her presence on the world stage for the first time. Dorrance hadn't planned to start Ham at the World Cup, but midfielder Megan McCarthy had an ACL injury. So he decided to give Ham a shot. And Anton made it very simple for me. You know, you get the ball if you look up, find Michelle's feet.
6: He's like, if she's got two people on her, she's unmarked. That's how good she is. I think he was trying to take a lot of the pressure off of me.
2: But in the 62nd minute of her first World Cup game, Ham saw an opportunity.
6: I got the ball on the left side and kind of, I think I carried it for about 30 yards, cut inside, and hit it cleanly.
5: Here's Mia Ham, her drive, she scores! Mia Ham with a rocket!
2: What a great right-footed blast that came out of nowhere. I was like, well, that's fun. (laughs) It was 3-0, and the Americans were flying. But it wouldn't be that easy.
5: Long ball towards the area. Ball loose out in front. Viticule shoots. Scores! A gimme for Lena Viticule and Sweden on the board. And now down by just
2: two. Here it is again. It was 3-1. Then, just six minutes later...
5: Here's Inga Johansson,
2: replacement in the 50th minute. Long drive. She scores!
5: She got it in over Mary Harvey, and we've got ourselves a game. Now the
2: U.S. lead down to just 3-2. to two. I mean, that's a 40-yard shot. It was one of the greatest goals in Women's World Cup history. The U.S. was on the ropes, but the Americans dug in, desperate to hang on as the final minutes ticked by. And that is
5: it. The United States has held on for a 3-2 victory over Sweden.
2: They were saved
6: by the bell. Now, the halves were only 40 minutes long. And some people were saying, if gone the full 90, maybe it would have been a different scoreline.
2: We'll never know what would have happened if FIFA hadn't made the game shorter. But as it was, the US got a win in the opening game. And that was huge. More than that, they learned a valuable lesson. Here's Shannon Higgins-Sarovsky.
1: It just spent so much emotion on prepping for this game and coming to the reality that uh, we were actually going to be playing for this kind of a a title. I think we came out strong and just kind of faded as the game went on (laughs) because we had emotionally exhausted ourselves.
2: Thanks to the training camp, they were in good enough physical shape that they could overwhelm their opponents. With the first game behind them, they knew now to mentally pace themselves too. The U.S. had gotten savvier over the years, and they had enough international experience now that they knew to throw their own elbows and not look for calls from the referee. They had even grown accustomed to the challenges of traveling around the world, especially in China.
4: We were losing a lot of weight when we'd go over there. And it was hard to keep your energy up.
2: So instead of subsisting on Snickers and Pepsi as they had done before, this time the team had a culinary assist from Dorrance's brother and defender Carla Warden Overbeck's boyfriend, who were in the restaurant business. They brought food over with them and cooked in the hotel's kitchen.
4: So we had pasta and meatballs and stuff like that, American food when we wanted it.
2: You could argue that having food from home was a big competitive advantage for the U.S. But when the Swedish coaches asked if their team could partake from the Americans' food reserves, Doran said yes. And that might be the best portrayal of the team's attitude. Cordial in the dining room, ruthless on the field. Their playing style was fast-paced and full throttle, but it was more than
3: just an attitude. It was a strategy. What we had right out of the gate was a philosophy that we developed at North Carolina immediately, which was we were going to reach out and grab the other team by the throat and squeeze the air out of them.
2: Instead of sitting back defensively and waiting for their opponent to bring the ball downfield, the Americans attacked their foes as a unit in all areas of the field. The high press required every U.S. player to commit to it. And it was exhausting, so fitness was paramount. But the strategy also forced turnovers in the opposing end. That could lead to quick US scoring chances.
3: And so all of a sudden, we took this very aggressive, collegiate, high pressing game, took it into the world arena. We're playing against these teams that are mostly playing a 4 4 2. We're playing a 3 4 3, and we are pressing like there's no tomorrow. Most teams had six forwards and
2: midfielders, the US had seven, and those seven players were relentless.
3: And all of a sudden, these other teams are in shock when they play against us, because they don't have the luxury of playing it around casually in the back without challenge. And all of a sudden, these warriors that I have found in the American collegiate game, we sort of changed the game.
2: The terrifying front three of that high-pressure attack, Akers, jennings Guebera, and Heinrichs, set the tone for the Americans, swarming the opposing goal and shredding defenses. It earned the U.S. front line a nickname worthy of such a dangerous weapon.
4: That front three with Akers, April, and Crazy Legs, Karen, they called them the triple-edged sword.
2: That sword was on full display over the next three games against Brazil, Japan, and Taiwan.
5: Jennings, going wide, left foot in shot, she scores! Here's Michelle Akers, stall. Stall avoids one tackle, attempt, her touch, she scores! Michelle Akers, stall! One on one, going left side of the shot. She scores! April Heinrichs.
4: You couldn't mark just one of them or just two of them. I mean, you had three.
5: Here's the shot. April goal! Karen Jennings makes it three to nothing. Looking for April Heinrichs. She chips. She scores.
4: Think about that front line. Three of the best forwards to ever play, playing at the exact same time.
2: They're doing it all. They're scoring goals. They're attacking. They're playing solid defense. They're organizing the ball in the midfield. You could almost make a highlight video by just one half of this game. These days, facing an opening group of Sweden, Brazil, and Japan would be the most extreme group of death possible. But that wasn't the case in 91. Brazil scared the U.S. with a rash of knee-high tackles, but the Americans kept their cool and hung five on the South Americans. Japan provided little resistance against a U.S. team featuring several reserves. And in the quarterfinals against Taiwan, Michelle Akers, the sharpest of the swords, just couldn't stop scoring.
5: Ships it into the area. The header, the goal! Michelle Akers goal. Five goals on the
2: evening. Oh my gosh, I scored, oh my gosh, like I just I just cannot miss. When it was over, the U.S. had won 7-0, and Akers had scored five goals, still tied for a World Cup single-game record by one player. In their first four games, Akers had eight goals. jennings Gabera had three, Heinrichs and Ham had two each. The U.S. was a buzzsaw. That attitude didn't go over so well with some other teams. More on that later. But fans around the world loved it. Remember the US's rampant performance in Haiti during the World Cup qualifiers that won over the Haitian fans? That wasn't the only time that happened. Here's Heinrichs. In
6: 1986, when we were playing in Italy, the Italians liked us. So the Italians started cheering, Usa, Usa, Usa. And we're like, what are they saying? What? What are they? What? And then we realized it was USA in their language, Usa, Usa, Usa.
2: Usa, Usa, Usa became a lasting gift for the USA. They made it their pregame cheer. The team still does it today.
6: I like it. When I turn the TV on, it's the one thing that still goes back from 1986. And we always tell them, not, ah, it's not a, ah.
4: It's Usa, Usa,
6: Usa, get lower, you know. It's intimidating.
2: The U.S. team's international fandom only escalated in China. We were like the Beatles traveling in the
6: 90s. When our bus moved, there were thousands of Chinese people around the bus wanting to touch our blonde-headed players, wanting to reach out and touch our players' hands.
2: The enthusiasm of those fans surrounding the U.S. bus was totally genuine. But the stadium crowds themselves were, what's the right expression? Artificially enhanced.
3: What happened, because China wanted to make sure this was going to be an incredibly successful event they ordered the different factories around these stadiums to attend the game. And then certain sections of the fans were assigned to root for different teams. And you'd see, you know, this one factory rooting for the United States, another factory would be rooting for Japan. And so sure enough, the stadiums were full because this was an event hosted by a country that could order their citizenry to attend the match. The exact truth
2: here is hard to pin down. Everyone has a slightly different story of how the stadiums got filled. But no matter how it came to be, the stadiums were still full and buzzing with energy.
4: It was like this pulsating, visceral experience that we'd never been through. And literally, you'd walk off the bus and, you know, kids wanting autographs. And, you know, it was something we had never experienced in the United States.
5: So the United States is now just two wins away. From the M M&M Cup in the First People World Championship for Women's Soccer.
2: The US would face two-time defending European champion Germany in the semifinals. And while the Americans had steamrolled teams in the past three games, Germany was in another league. Truth be told, there are some doubts among the US players about their chances against the Germans. Here's Shannon Higgins.
1: When we had been in Europe, you know, six or seven months before, whenever it was, um, we did not have a successful trip. And so we really didn't know how we were going to do it. But they used
2: that trip to their advantage. Dorrance thought the Germans probably didn't fear the Americans, so his playing style might give them an edge. Here's Heinrichs. They're going to try to build out of the back, and we're going to press them. And we did. I don't know if the Germans expected a different strategy. We jumped on them early. And we jumped on them often. The U.S. dominated, but one player in particular took control of the game, filling the net with three goals in the first 33 minutes.
3: Here's Jennings, she has Aiken's stall with it. Carrie
5: shot, and has
2: The other one was, a, I think, a, her intercepting
6: a pass, and she went in one-on-one with the keeper.
5: Here's a chance for Karen Jennings. Jennings with the loose ball in the penalty area. In on goal, she scores!
6: I'm sure that that group of players, of German players, have nightmares of Karen Gabera from that game.
2: The U.S. won 5-2. Jennings Gabera's hat trick may have caused nightmares for the Germans, but for her, it's a love story.
6: My fiancé, Jim Gabera flew over for just that game. So he was playing pro, and he said, if you can, the semis, I'll come over. So he arrived that morning, so that gave me a little bit of extra
2: motivation. The Americans had proved they could take on the European champion and absolutely bludgeon the Germans to the point it looked unfair, at least to Germany's
3: coach. He was so humiliated in the press conference following our victory. He basically attacked us for cheating. And how do we cheat? Well, we pressed. These days, a high-pressing system is common in soccer,
2: including in Germany. But Dorrance's U.S. team was ahead of the curve in the way it played.
3: It messes up your ability to play the ball around in the back. And he gave one excuse after another for why his German team lost. And everyone that watched that game knew that we reached out and just strangled them to death.
2: That was November 27th. The next day was Thanksgiving. The Americans had a lot to be grateful for. Most of the team had family members in China to support them. The team and their families celebrated together. It was a brief, calm moment in the middle of a chaotic tournament. Also, Brazilian soccer legend Pelé was there.
6: We're in China eating duck or turkey or chicken, who knows what, with Pelé. That's not a sacrifice. That was, you know, glorious. It was an amazing
2: opportunity. It was well-earned. For years, the U.S. women's national team had been playing away from the cameras, without salaries, without a claim. They had all made sacrifices for this special opportunity— Yes, almost no one was watching back in the States, but at that Thanksgiving meal, it was just the team, their families, and Pelé. And to them, this World Cup, it meant everything. In 99, they would become a cultural sensation for millions, but in 91, it was intimate. These women had every right to be known far and wide in America, but they weren't, and they weren't bitter about that.
6: was not at all disappointed in anything. It it felt like the most important thing in the world to me, right? I'm in China. I'm playing in a world event under the FIFA flag and national anthems and full stadiums. You know, there,
4: there's kind of a piece to to being able to compete in an environment in 91. We were excited to represent our country and loved being around each other.
6: I don't think I'd go back and change a thing. I got married uh... Less than a year later, every one of those teammates was at my wedding from, you know, all the different states we encompass. And uh, I still talk to every one of those teammates all the time. And I know all their kids and, you know, Mia Ham was actually in the room at the birth of my third child. So that's the kind of closeness that I have with that group. So uh, I wouldn't change anything.
2: At the same time, another idea started to percolate in some of the players' minds. If they could win over the crowds in China and Haiti and Italy, why not in the States? They had been competing for the thrill of the competition, but now, at this stage, maybe they could change the domestic game. Here's Fowdy.
4: Because there was no social media, there was no uh, followers and all that nonsense, it was, the approach was, how do we... How do we grow the game, right? And how do we make it to a point where we've got thousands coming when we play at home? How
2: do they get thousands to show up back home? Well, first, with the pressure of the future of women's soccer on their shoulders, they had to win this World Cup. But their high-pressing style had started to take its toll. The final would be their sixth game in 14 days. April Heinrichs.
6: I remember being exhausted because, you know, you've got physical fatigue but emotional fatigue. And I
2: think our team was exhausted. In the team they would play, Norway, would be their biggest challenge yet. The Norwegians were good, physical, and motivated to take the upstart Americans down a peg. Here's Linda Madelin, Norway's tough-as-nails star, who for the last two decades has been a canine unit police officer in Oslo.
4: When the Americans come, they always look very professional. They don't talk to the other teams. They have their nose in the air.
2: (laughs) The Americans weren't so fond of them either. Michelle Akers.
0: Well, we hated those damn Norwegians. I love Norwegians personally, but we hated that team because they were so good and tough and dirty. The team
4: was talking a lot, oh, they're the Americans and what do they think they are? And... Who the hell is, are they? They asked for it. <laughs> yeah, they asked for us to step up to, to beat them.
2: It was time. The 91 FIFA Women's World Cup Final. USA-Norway. Next time on Throwback. Throwback is written and hosted by me, Grant Wall. Produced by Grant Irving. Associate producers are Kara Kornhaber and Harry Sportout. Executive producers are Scott Brody and Ben Eagle. Editing by Emma Morgenstern and Adam Duerson. Original music by Nolan Schneider. Mixed by Sam Baer. Thanks to U.S. Soccer, Cadence 13, and everyone who took time to speak with us for this episode. ProBack is a production of Sports Illustrated. For more of the best sports storytelling, visit SI.com.